Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. One minute and counting till we reach Bond in the 70s, follow-up episode to Bond in the 60s, and returning very gladly is Mr. John Arminio, comic book and film reviewer. How you doing, John? I'm doing great. It's an honor to be back. I love talking James Bond. I had a great time talking to you about yeah. Bond before, so I'm glad we get to continue our conversation. Yeah, me too. Um, and just right at the top, uh, I know I'm going to have some <laughs> criticisms for some of these films. Uh, I think there's some stuff to criticize, but um, that's only because I love these films so much. Of course. Um, and, you know, I've just been thinking about a lot of these films recently a lot. And, you know, in the past couple of weeks, there's been some revelations of even more backstage malfeasance and sexual harassment in the film industry and in the comic book uh, industry. And it's, you know, uh, maddening because it keeps coming out and people are still sort of rediscovering even past uh, sexual harassment instances that they should have, you know, known about or been aware of for 20 years. Yeah. And for the, the Bond films as much, you know, misogyny, and racial insensitivity and even sort of, um, you know, product placement that is a result of uh, global capitalism that has led to a wealth disparity dystopia in 2020. Um, <laughs> the onset and backstage um, goings on of James Bond, the more and more I, I look into it, the more I find things to admire about the people that made these films. Um, they're just countless instances of Roger Moore being a stand-up guy or of Cubby Broccoli going out of his way to pay people more than he had to, to do favors for people that he didn't have to. Um, even uh, Yafet Koto, who was great as the villain in... Um, Never Let Die. <laughs> in Never Let Die, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, he, he had conflicts with the director guy Hamilton. He didn't like a lot of his dialogue. He had issues with his make makeup. He had issues with how his character died. Um, even he described Cubby Broccoli, a studio head, as like a father to him. And he says years later that he still feels like he's a member of the Broccoli family. And so for an actor to describe himself as a family member of a studio head, um, it really means a lot to me that this franchise has been around for so long and in 2020 is still trying to keep that sense of ethics, you know, intact. Uh, and so it's a joy to be able to talk about that without having to cringe at somebody horrible who was involved in making these things. Um, and even like um, Lewis Gilbert and... Uh, uh, Chris, uh, Lewis Gilbert and Christopher Wood, the oh, screenwriter, yeah. mm -hmm. um, talked about how they both agree that a good idea has many fathers. And for a director and a screenwriter of a franchise film to agree <laughs> on that sentiment um, about a film they collaborate on, I think is a testament to the environment that this franchise uh, sort of encourages. So it, it's great to be able to celebrate that on this podcast with you. Yeah, well said. Uh, that's something that definitely doesn't get brought up enough is just what a great kind of inner house this production company was, Eon in the uh, 60s and 70s especially, and how Broccoli would bring in his daughter to work on the film, his son-in-law to, uh, to work on the film. And even though this ended up in this decade that we're going to be talking about being a professional divorce, 
between himself and Harry Saltzman, the other uh, Godfather of the Bond series. I think you're right. I think it's just a great connectedness that's that lasts and has really spoken to the longevity of this series. Um, so well said, especially when some of the cringe, you know, inducing elements of the films themselves still get yeah. kind of, you know, uh, called out and kind of mentioned controversial. Last time I think you said your bond uh, watching films, uh, your bond watching film buddy's name is Barbara, right? Yes. That's great. Isn't that, I think that's, um, Albert, uh, I think that's Broccoli's daughter's name, right? The one yeah, that yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. That's terrific. And I don't know uh, too many female fans of the Bond series. My wife is, will not watch them. You know, she's, she's just already kind of geared up against the potential um, badly aged sexism and things like that. Yeah. Um, but I think even those elements, you're right, even if you, even if you kind of accept that those are controversial elements, you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, the, the people behind it could not have been had, had a better thought in their head than, you know, yeah. just bring great entertainment and, and just fun to the cinemas. Yeah. So yeah, with that, with that said, uh, last time we talked about seven movies, this time we're talking about five, but they are big movies. I think there's going to be a lot to say about them and I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, uh, for Diamonds Are Forever, right? You could probably talk about this movie for three hours. I'm expecting nothing less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we've had some back and wow. forth on social media about it recently. It's uh, it's worth talking about. Uh, so I'm I'm ready. I got a bottle of 74 Fui Yuck right here next to me. <laughs> and John, I want I want you to go ahead and launch into your thoughts on Diamonds Are Forever. We got the OG 07 back in the tux. We got Bond on U.S. soil for the first time since Goldfinger. This is the movie where Bond literally falls onto a toilet. John, <laughs> diamonds are forever. Go. Guy, where do you start? Yeah, so after um, after Lazenby left because he thought Bond was lame, um, and he thought that uh, you know the rebel without a cause counterculture was going to take over Hollywood and, and destroy everything that came before, he's like, I want to be cool and grow a beard. Um, they brought uh, Sean Connery like my back. dad during the quarantine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and there was a lot of people who might have uh, taken up the mantle. Uh, Roger Moore was somebody who they tried to get at, at a couple points. I know John Gavin, um, but they eventually landed on Connery. Um, and Connery famously uh, would donate his entire salary to charity. Um, but I think he also got a piece of the back end. So it's not like he was... Uh, given anything away but and I think that's, that's something that yeah I didn't know until recently I had always heard he got the the record-breaking paycheck yeah uh, but which he ended up donating or, or creating a fund for Scottish writers I believe but yeah. I had no idea that he also had like 12% of the gross which yeah. blew that paycheck and ha- I mean destroyed it so he and, pretty he made up pretty well yeah yeah a little bit <laughs> and I'm there is a little bit of, of speculation that it it was just a power move that he just wanted to see Hollywood basically come to him and like, come back, Sean, we want you back to save our franchise. And, you know, when you're a, one of the most famous actors in the world, it kind of feels good to have studios come crawling back. Um, and the result is he's not entirely uh, checked in. Um, in his performance as James Bond, he's sort of waltzing through the entire movie, but I think that's entirely appropriate for the sort of goofy insanity 
that this movie has. There's a a moon buggy chase in Nevada. <laughs> it's weird. Um, That's the word, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, it it opens with a plastic surgery scenario where bathing in goop is the key to making blood clothes people... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. gun holster mouse traps bikini top garrote it's such a strange just right off the bat you've already got just a list of weird things happening in this movie and even even in that opening sequence where bond is sort of trying to find blofeld the adr is so bad like it's like they had a half an hour to edit this one sequence. Like it, it's so glaring in how ad hoc that sequence was was made. It's so strange. And then to, to go into this very sort of carefully orchestrated thing with you know multiple Charles Grays as as Blofeld, who you know is it's it, it's a weird movie. You know, watching it this time, I thought. They open with drowning in mud. Later on, a bad guy gets shot with fire extinguishing fluid. Is this a Double Dare episode of a yeah. Bond movie? I don't know. There's a lot of goop in this film. I, yeah, go it, ahead. It's, and I'll, uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, the, Jimmy Dean, the sausage magnate and country singer, <laughs> as Willard White, the sort of Howard Hughes um, model that apparently was inspired by a dream cubby broccoli had like he was trying like he had a dream that he was calling to howard hughes who was a personal friend of his and hughes turned around and was a total stranger and so that seems like it would be kind of a terrifying nightmare if you know you were calling out to somebody who you thought you knew and it turned out to be someone you did not but that turned into this sort of in- insane plot with um you know somebody holed up in a uh Las Vegas casino being the puppet of Blofeld. And it's a great premise too, in terms of the Howard Hughes type recluse who gets kidnapped and somebody takes his place because literally nobody would know because nobody ever sees this guy. And of course, you know, later on you have the fake Howard Hughes uh, biography, autobiography and uh, the Melvin and Howard situation where, you know, people are definitely trying to capitalize on his absence. uh, The absence of this, you know, billionaire who's, uh, you know, kind of sunk sunken away from the world. I just don't know if it fits into a Bond movie necessarily because it's such, it's, it's such its own thing. You know, it's just, it's a weird thing to kind of throw into something that already has multiple plots going on. Yes. Yeah. Especially if you have the Blofeld plot of the, you know, multiple plastic surgery Blofelds, uh, this, the diamond smuggling, which is its own convoluted thing because it goes from, you know, South Africa uh, through Europe to Las Vegas via a very strange um, funeral home smuggling scheme via 1930s gangster tropes. Um, and then eventually is used to make a satellite laser beam um and along the way you have winton kid um the most hilarious homosexual assassins uh in the history of cinema i'm pretty sure they must have been the first gay characters i ever saw in a film which is depending on how you look at it (laughs) maybe not a great way to start out (laughs) but like looking at it now it is 
kind of distasteful, <laughs> but it's also like their relationship. I find I can't help but find adorable. <laughs> sure. Just like the, there's little moments where, like they're on the plane and they see uh, the Bond girl, uh, Tiffany Case, and you know she's very good looking for a woman, and the sort of shame that he has and that. Uh, I forget. I can't, I can't even remember which one's Winton, which one's Kid, even now. Um, the shame he has for saying that, and the sort of disappointment his partner has for, from hearing that. It's just such a weird choice to have in this movie, and then to have them later like hold hands as they're walking off after murdering someone. It's such a goofy, like inexplicable choice. Yeah, and it's funny because something that's you know, transported from Fleming. So many of his villains were, you know, kind of offensively, you yeah. know, homosexual, you know, negative, negative portraits of homosexuals. And I think this is the only ones who made it to the film uh, fully out, as it were, you know, fully yeah. explicitly homosexual. So on the one hand, if you kind of know that background, you're like, oh, why did they have to honor that tradition? And, you know, the, from the few things that they took from this novel, why did they have to take that? But I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think other than maybe Wint, who is Bruce Glover, the Bruce Glover character, because he's the one who introduces, my name is Mr. Wint, this is Mr. Kid. Yeah. Uh, maybe uh, him reacting to, at the end, to Bond, grabbing his hands, bringing them up under his leg by <laughs> with that gleeful little cry that he gives. Uh, they're not offensive characters, I don't think. I think that yeah. they're just, you know, a couple of adorable hitmen, as you say, who we don't really, I, we assume he's, they're working for Blofeld, but they don't even have a scene with Blofeld. <laughs> they're kind of just renegade assassins out uh, working their way up this line of diamond smugglers, and we're not really sure who what their affiliations are other than the two of them they have each other in this crazy world of spies and global conquests they're just having fun dropping scorpions down people's uh, shirts and so there is something about that that is a little bit uh endearing i agree yeah 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 and i do agree that that bit at the end with the like oh something's going up my butt i like it that's that's really distasteful um but that, that this, one that's a little bit over the top yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but this th- that pair do contribute to this movie perhaps being the most examples of an unnecessarily complicated death scheme leading to bond escaping um mm-hmm. like they bond is knocked out and they go to the trouble of taking him to the desert putting him in a pipe and then just leaving <laughs> right like, like maybe he'll die and in, you, you had <laughs> you had hours to murder him and you just leave him and you know he's a secret agent just just if you i, I understand wanting to bury him in the desert but just just kill the guy yeah <laughs> and i even, know that's even not before, the point of these movies but. even before considering that i mean you see him in the pipe you know when the next day when they're you know, uh, laying the pipe across the desert and nobody could see a full grown man lying <laughs> with this pipe. I mean, that's quite a chance to take by itself that someone's just not going to come along and go, Hey, there's a, there's a guy sleeping in this pipe. Maybe we should get him out of there. <laughs> yes. I, uh, yeah, it definitely. When things get that absurd, you, it, you do as much as you know, you know, these villains obviously aren't going to kill bond. He's going to find a way to escape these elaborate uh, situations 
make less sense than you'd like them to. <laughs> but the the my thoughts on I, I don't think I've ever purposely watched the Bond series from Doctor No to the end, you know, in chronological order, the way that I'm doing now for these episodes. It's fascinating for me to watch them in order. It's really interesting to kind of see the evolution. And I realize watching these 70s Bond movies, starting with this one, the, the 70s chase craze that these films adapted at this point, you could literally play banjo music almost over almost every set piece of these first three movies from the yeah. 70s. Uh, the comedy, the villains. I'm not just talking about Clifton James popping up as J.W. Pepper in two of the movies. I mean, there is a real mentality of like, ah, we'll just have the hero, you know, be tearing across the highway or across the across the river in a, in a motorboat and have the villains just be chasing them and we'll have crashes and we'll have a little bit of side comedy going on. And it's funny because Burt Reynolds at one point was considered to play James Bond. I don't know if it was the influence of, you know, Reynolds' popularity in the 70s or what. It, it predates it a little bit even, I think. But they definitely jumped yeah. full force, both feet into, let's just have a crazy chase. Two or three crazy chases right in the middle of all these movies. And I, I do think that, you know, accepting all the goofiness of Diamonds Are Forever, I think one of the structural problems with the movie is that the Las Vegas chase that goes around the, the city and into that parking lot, I think that is definitely the most exciting set piece of the movie. And it comes, you know, right in the middle. And so when you have the very sort of rote um, oil rig set piece at the end, it seems very anticlimactic, especially when it hinges on like a cassette tape shoved down Tiffany Case's bikini bottoms yeah bikini bottoms <laughs> um so if and, and i think that's something that um the production team only realized later um but we did get to see that gorgeous mustang go through a uh an alleyway sideways so it's a, it's a great stunt although yeah although i think you know when it comes out yeah, it's, it's the facing way. the wrong way. And it always gets me that lazy bit of camera movement where it's it, it, it kind of tries to trick your brain into thinking like, oh, he just switches sides in the middle of the alley. Yeah. <laughs> Even James Bond can't pull that off. Yeah, I doubt it. Even if the alley cup like breaks out into like a little, you know, uh, outlet or something, I don't think he's going to have time to flip it over on the other two wheels before he gets out. Uh, like they couldn't reverse the film or something. I don't know, but they, they, because in that shot, there's the name of a casino that you ah. can see as it comes out. So if you reversed it, the letters would be backwards. Even that would be less insulting to my brain, though. I think than <laughs> just making me expect expecting me to believe that he somehow popped it over on the other side halfway through the alley. <laughs> but it is a good chase scene, and you're right. It, it makes scenes afterwards seem anticlimactic uh, to have the big one right there. But I think that kind of becomes the formula of a lot of these films in the 70s is that they have big chase scene yeah. right in the middle of the film and have kind of construct everything else around them. I think that's definitely the case with Live and Let Die and absolutely with The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. And and I think immediately after, or not immediately, but soon after that, you get that very odd uh, fight with Bambi and Thumper in Willard White's house. And you kind of don't know, like, are they... I guess they're guarding Willard White to prevent him from leaving. Um, but they really like kick the crap out of James for 90% of the fight. But then they get in the pool and he just like 
dunks their heads under the water like they're his little cousins or something and then the fight's over like they demonstrate that they are these olympic class gymnasts kicking around this aging scottish actor and then all of a sudden they lose defeated by getting dunked yeah <laughs> very humiliating absurd yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous and that's that's another thing that when i was a kid and i watched this movie didn't i didn't think about it at all i was like oh bond got him and now these days it's like wow that is embarrassing <laughs> doesn't make any sense at all um but they're they're another faction from this movie where it's like you, like you said who who are they working for who are they, they you assume that they're working for blofeld but they, like winton kid they're just these two separate entities who are just kind of existing within this crazy world of diamonds are forever and are just there to beat up bond for a little bit. And then they're, then they're done. <laughs> and, but then there's things that are really clever. Like in the beginning, one of the only like practical gadgets in the film is that like fake fingerprints creator that bond uses to disguise his identity as a diamond smuggler, Peter Franks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he knows he's impersonating somebody like, an actual spy might. And so he has a device from Q where he can plant fake fingerprints so that if he's ever fingerprinted, he will come up as Peter Franks. And that's, oh, that is an actual gadget that would actually be useful for a spy. And then there's a great fight in an elevator where, you know, the actual Peter Franks encounters James Bond. And these two, like six foot two or six foot four, like 220 pound, you know, athletes go at it in a like four by four confined space and it's a really exciting fight and then you know an hour later you're having guys pretending to be in slow motion faking the moon landing (laughs) so it's it's an incredibly schizophrenic movie it's definitely the comedy the jokes of this movie that really distract you the funeral guy home guy's name uh, the funeral home guy's name is mr slumber for example yeah, yeah. <laughs> and blowfield's line about if we destroy kansas the world may not hear about it for years i mean just really weird decisions to bring in the humor like that like the the moon landing thing is just beyond strange the zambor the gorilla scene at circus circus is every time i bring that up to my brother who's a huge bond fan he does not remember that scene <laughs> like really the woman who transforms into a gorilla you don't remember that yeah like what what are they doing and and why is shady trees nightclub act sh- like shown in the movie i, I don't <laughs> get it yeah beyond i mean beyond the shady trees a character name from the book i don't even know why they yeah. emphasize that character even slightly well, we do get to character named plenty o'toole uh lana wood yep named after your father i assume is what james says there are some some great uh one-liners um like when tiffany case tells bond let me finish dressing and his response is oh don't oh please don't not on my account (laughs) what do you think of uh jill st john in this movie as tiffany case um I think the script doesn't do her any favors because she's great in that first introductory scene when she's really going tete-a-tete with James Bond. But later when it's clear that um, she's sort of roped in this international intrigue that she had no intention of diving into, she just kind of becomes this goofy sidekick to James Bond and her charisma just kind of goes down the tubes, unfortunately. Like she's, she has some 
gorgeous outfits and she's a beautiful woman. Um, but I think her character is just sort of forgotten in the latter half of the film. Yeah. She kind of becomes completely useless. Although when Bond gets mad at her for misunderstanding what he means and switching the tapes again, I totally get it. I mean, I think he was wrong to get that indignant because what he wanted from her was not very clear and she came late to the party. So I don't blame her for that one. Maybe, maybe for firing a machine gun and falling off the wheel rig, which is just (laughs) stupid. (laughs) It's a dumb thing to put in there. But you know what bothers me the most about this in terms of bomb? Because, you know, watching it again, I, I don't, I, I, I like Connery better than I remembered. Um, I feel like he's not as removed as he seemed in You Only Live Twice. Maybe because in You Only Live Twice, Bond needs to be a little more present. Whereas in this one, there's more of like a lounging around kind of feel, sort of a hangout movie sort of vibe. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that really bugs me is at the end when Winton kids show up on the, the boat and Bond immediately knows that they're the bad guys from smelling the aftershave, but he still drinks the wine he serves him. Why would he do that? <laughs> he doesn't know that they have the bomb in the cake. He just knows that these are the bad guys. Why accept wine served by these guys? Yeah, the because the the script knows that they're <laughs> going to try and kill him with a bomb, and so therefore James Bond knows. And so I think if you look back to a movie like Firm Washer with Love, where James Bond is deducing. Uh, the danger of his opposite number via the meal. Um, you, you know, you're actually seeing spycraft and um, intuitiveness in in the character, while as uh, in in Diamonds Are Forever, he's just sort of going along with the goofiness of the film. He's just kind of in tune with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I get that. That's a good defense, actually. Yeah, he's he's almost. Um, the character is almost a meta commentary on the franchise at, at this point. And so as much as I loved Sean Connor, I think a change was needed in, in lead actors. Oh, absolutely. I will say that, you know, Bond at least is not as bad a spy as Klaus Hermersheimer is a bad lackey. Yeah. <laughs> when Bond walks into the, 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 the hidden, you know, uh, whatever it is the <laughs> the willard white's uh hidden place where moon landings are faked and such and he's basically like who are you you can't tell me who you are well here take <laughs> take a pass and take my name and this is where you want to go it's like oh my god you're the worst lackey ever what are you doing is there no security around here i think my my favorite thing about Klaus Hergesheimer is that an in joke of which there are many in this franchise, but that's uh, Guy Hamilton's name for a uh, whatchamacallit. Like bring me the, uh, the, the, the Hergesheimer. And so they, <laughs> they named the character after that. Oh, that's great. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, for in terms of positives of this film, and I should say, I enjoy this movie for yeah. all of its faults. I really I have a good time watching it. Um, I will say though, if it's for like very solid positives that are irrefutable, I think one of the best songs of the entire franchise, if not oh the absolute best song, just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, um, I know it's been sampled over and over again, but that is just a, an astoundingly great song. Like, it's it's an earworm that'll get in your head and never leave. Yeah, no, it's terrific, and even the use of it during the film. Is fantastic. So that's something that I like 
without having to, you know, without no asterisk needed, you know, <laughs> I really yeah. enjoy that about the film. Um, what else? Anything else to say? I mean, I think we both kind of agree. This is like a goofy romp, with weird jokes and strange characters and maybe just a little too much winking at the audience. Um, but, and it doesn't make, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but uh, it's, it's, I, I always say guilty pleasure, I guess, for this one. Yeah. Um, one thing, I guess, an example of the kind of unnecessary favors that the production d- did, um, the guy who plays uh, Saxby, uh, Bruce Cabot, um, he was given sort of uh, as many shots as production would allow um, because uh, he was nearing the end of his life and uh, he knew it. Um, he, he was an actor from the thirties, like he was in King Kong and he was a close friend of some people in the production. So they wanted to give him a, a good send off. Uh, so I thought that was a, a nice behind the scenes story. Oh, nice. Yeah. No, I didn't know that either. So after Diamonds are farewell. First off, we say farewell to Blofeld in an official capacity within the Eon community continuity for uh, 45 years yeah. at this point. Uh, we already discussed the kind of McClory lawsuit and everything, why you know, that came to pass. But this is the last time we're going to see someone officially named Blofeld in a Bond movie well until the Daniel Craig era. Um, but we're saying goodbye to Connery in the Eon era as well and introducing uh, Mr. Roger Moore. As the Bond franchise comes roaring into the 70s with a exploitation romp. Um, live and let die. Uh, so just right off the bat, I want to say about Roger Moore, um, we discussed how Connery movies kind of made it feel like this is Bond's world and that he's the master of it, right? I think with Moore, I feel it's like it's a world that he's kind of, it's kind of, he, he kind of knows he's inheriting this world. It's not necessarily one that he isn't, commander of but it's one that he survives in effortlessly and i think that's the distinction i think of connery and his bond as a predator and i mean that with all the connotations you know the uh the line from thunderball he sees the world and wants it all or even the insignia on the bond family crest the world is not enough i think are like really how connery plays bond he's like a prize fighter who steps out of the corner looking to taste blood you know Mm-hmm. And then you got Roger Moore and there's something more passive about his performance, almost like, Hey, if there's a problem, this guy will handle that problem. <laughs> you know, it's not someone who's going to, you know, if you bring him trouble, if you bring him a problem, you're going to be sorry. This is a guy who's like, all right, tell me what the problem is and I'll solve it. He's more hands-on, more of a problem solver. Uh, he's got all his tricks, right? He always finds a way out of a situation that presents itself to him. And to just abuse the boxing analogy a little bit, it's almost like Muhammad Ali, you know, who'll be happy to let his opponent tire himself out before moving in for the kill. With Connery's Bond, I think it means, I think Connery's Bond means you're fucked. And I think Moore's Bond means, give me what you got, I can take it. Yeah, in terms I, I of think, like, yeah sorry, go ahead. No, um, I think what you said about uh, Connor being a predator is incredibly apt because I think when he he left for his first audition, um, you know the the broccolis lo- looked um, out out the window at him walking back to his car or just walking down the street and said he moved like a panther, and that's why they they cast him. And so yeah, I think that characteristic carried him throughout the franchise. Whereas um, I think even Connery said about Roger Moore that you know, he comes into the room with comedy and Connery 
left the room w- with comedy. Uh, mm. So there, there is this lack of apparent threat uh, that Roger Moore brought to the role and a, a friendliness and a, and a sense of, of being suave that Connery just didn't have. Um, and so I think that also makes it um, more distasteful when like in the man with the golden gun, he slaps Maud Adams. It, it's, it, it makes you more uncomfortable for some reason than when Connery did. It's almost like you're expecting it of, of a predator like Connery. Absolutely. I don't think that that's in character with the more bond at all. Yeah. Um, although he does have moments of seriousness, which I think do. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but definitely. I agree that one is one that is an off note for sure. Um, just in terms of, I mean, just in terms of seduction, I think Connery's bond says, you know, we're banging and you don't have a choice. Yeah. And, and Moore's is every bit as blunt in his methods, but he says, Hey, I'm just putting it out there. You know, what do you say? You know, yeah. like I'm, I'm pretty irresistible. If you agree, let's get it on. Um, and in that way, he's more respectful towards the women in his mm-hmm. films, I think. And, uh, um, and yeah, the movies still have female characters throwing themselves at him. That can't be helped, I guess, you know, in this franchise, but uh, it's significantly less rapey, yeah. I would say. And uh, it's a great quote, too, from Lois Maxwell, who said, uh, Sean's the one you fuck, Roger's the one you marry, which I really like. Yeah. Um, uh, but like I said, there's always that scene where he's not, he shows that he's not fucking around with Rosie and Le- Live and Let Die with the gunsmith and uh, Man with the Golden Gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way he sl- uh, slaps the guy's hand off of his tie so that he falls to his death in The Spy Who Loved Me. You know, unlike Connery's Bond, who seemed to be like a genuine brute when Moore's bond brings the asshole. It's for a reason, you know, it's, it's like a tactic or a weapon. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, it, the tux is a costume for Connery, but I think Roger Moore was bone was born uh, in a, in a tie and tails. Yeah. He's the, he's the gentleman bond. I mean, yeah. you know, he brought it from Simon Templar on the, the, the saint, you know, I mean, yeah. that's just his persona. And you're right. I think that Sean Connery really kind of disappears into the role of Bond, whereas Roger Moore kind of puts it on like a tuxedo, like you said, yeah. like, you know, just kind of wears the role. Uh, another great uh, analysis comes from our friend Tony Stella, who's always said that Connery is to Bruce Lee as Roger Moore is to Jackie Chan, which I really enjoy. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's a good comparison. Um, but then, like, but then there are the serious moments, like his response to Spy Who Loved Me to Anya mentioning his wife, and we get. And we realize that that that, uh, that humor, that flippancy, is a defense. You know, yeah, that he has vulnerable moments that yeah. uh, still come out. And you know, Tim Dalton ends up playing that haunted past in a different way. But I think Roger Moore's way is an interesting sort of way where you re- you don't realize automatically that he has sort of this defensive goofiness about him. That's something you kind of appreciate the more of his films that you see. Yeah, I think that moment when he just cuts Anya off in The Spy Who Loved Me after the mention of his wife, I think that might be the best moment of acting in Roger Moore's Bond. Like, you immediately see his humanity through all this veneer that, you know, at this at that point, you would have seen through three movies. Um, but I guess bringing it back to uh, Live and Let Die, um, I think this is an interesting period in the franchise because, you know, in, in 73, you know, this is towards the end of the Vietnam War. This is, you know, Watergate's. Um, so the world is very much kind of fed up and grossed out by the world of spies and sneaking around and global military reach by the West. And so 
the franchise sort of has to come at Bond almost making fun of him. Um, and I think that does hurt uh, these first two movies because um, even though Roger Moore is a great comedian, um, I think it veers too much into making James Bond the butt of the jokes. And then when James Bond um, gets one over on these, you know, these black characters or in the man of the golden gun, these martial arts experts, it just seems to belittle those characters all the more um, because mm. James, because it's this sort of like conflagration of, of not seriousness. Um, and especially in, you know, live and let die when, you know, every character who's not white that James Bond encounters ends up being involved in this sort of global black criminal conspiracy um, in order to like smuggle heroin into the United States. It just leaves a... Well, other than Harry Strutter, we should mention. Y- y- yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, the... the the good one, Harry Strutter. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so so that element just leaves a, a sort of a bad taste in my mouth. Um, you know, Solitaire was originally written to be a black woman, um, and then it was recast at Jane Seymour, who who is great uh, in in the role. Um, and so it it just one of those things that makes me wish I could enjoy the movie more. Uh, maybe if. There's few characters that I wish would go to movie hell <laughs> more than Sheriff Pepper. Because, good God. Yeah. Speaker <laughs> agent. On whose side? <laughs> it's hard to say why they fell in love with that character as much as they did. And maybe if he just appeared in this movie, it wouldn't be so egregious. But the fact that they brought him back in the very next film mm. is just uh, why, why, why <laughs> this decision? I mean, I, I, I can understand making fun of the stupid racist Southern sheriff in a scene. But the fact that over and over again, he shows up, calls characters boy, uh, and we're supposed to think it's funny. Um, it's just real aggravating that there's just, just like this glob of shit in the middle of my James Bond movie. It's almost like that's why they brought him back in the next one so he could call uh, Thai people boy as well. And maybe that would make up for it. And he calls them pointy. He calls everybody boy. So it's not that racist. Um, yeah, no, that's a shame. I mean, I think, you know, it should be obviously just mentioned that this comes from a book that is really unfortunately very very racist and yeah the book's worse it's so much worse i mean just the characterization of every single african-american character that is beyond awful um and i don't know you know certainly they didn't need to honor that in any way but yeah um but for me i guess the reason i like this you know before i realized you know just how unfortunate the stereotypes are is that the cast is really terrific. I mean, everyone in this movie is great. Um, do you think it's a black? Do you think of it as a black exploitation film? There are so many mem- cast members who were in black exploitation films: Gloria Hendry, Yafit Koto, Earl Jolly Brown, Julius Harris. Um, it's basically like the producers like bring me the cast of Friday Foster, you know, for this movie. Uh, do you think of it as a black exploitation film? Um, well, no, because I think I think. Um, 
a tenant of black exploitation films is a black protagonist mm-hmm. getting it over on white antagonists. Uh, and that's the opposite of what happens in this movie. It's, it's using a lot of the tropes and the signifiers and the imagery of black exploitation to sort of capture the cultural zeitgeist of the early 1970s. Um, but I, I would not classify it as a black exploitation film. Um, but but I, I do like that, um, you know, characters like, or actors like Julius Harris really spoke highly of, um, of, of Guy Hamilton. And, and so, you know, again, it was a really good environment for, for those actors and a way for them to all to get a, a nice paycheck. Oh yeah, for sure. Now, again, I mean, I don't think that, you know, I don't think the casting of these, um, actors just kind of picking out, you know, people, I mean, I was joking about saying Friday Foster. I mean, they, they, these are all great actors, you know, beyond the kind of genres that they were sort of stereotyped into. Uh, they're more than worthy to play the teehees and the whispers of the world, you know, yeah. of the bond world. Um, and Jeffrey Holder is a goddamn superstar in this movie. Like he doesn't get much to do, but as Baron Samity, he's just absolutely perfect. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. And he's, he's, you know, like a Broadway legend and, you know, a, a choreographer, a dancer. And, and I don't know what his character's presence in the Bond universe means. Like, is he an actual voodoo god? Because it seems <laughs> like he does die and come back to life. Well, um, that's, that's my follow-up question to the black exploitation is, uh, is this film supernatural? Is Solitaire actually, does she actually have magical powers? Is Baron Samedi actually returning to life again and again like how much do you think this is an actual science fiction horror kind of movie um i think in a world where you can use diamonds to make a laser and mud to perform plastic surgery (laughs) uh there is a world where a man could have his head shot into pieces like a clay pot and then come back and grow a new one (laughs) good answer good answer (laughs) Um, um, but, yeah, we yeah. haven't even mentioned the theme song to this one. Flipping yes. Paul McCartney. <laughs> no, Living the die. My favorite Paul McCartney song next to probably Me maybe, too. maybe I'm amazed. I love this song. Um, you know who didn't love this song? Uh was it it was Cubby Broccoli, wasn't it? Was it was Cubby Broccoli. Yeah, yeah. Um well not that the song, but basically the, the story is that Paul McCartney is a huge Bond fan and he wrote this song to submit it for this film specifically. And so George Martin brought it to Broccoli, who listened to it and said, this is great. This is terrific. Absolutely. We'll use the song. Who should we get to sing it? <laughs> and George Martin's like, what? It's like, oh, you know, I thought we'd get like Aretha Franklin or, you know, uh, or Paul McCartney, who's already recorded the song. And apparently Broccoli hated McCartney's version so much that he like took a demo to one of his rich friends and put it on for him. He was like, listen, how, listen to what, how shitty this is. And the rich friend was like, I will pay you $8 million right now for the rights to the song. It's going to be giant. It's going to be a huge hit. I can't believe you don't have faith in this. So it, Broccoli was the one guy who was adamant that it was not going to work. He Bond was the one person in pop culture history who has a documented example of calling shit on the Beatles. Cousin Goldfinger. That's right. He says it's it's almost as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. <laughs> we already got the war against the Fab Four. Yeah, part of the uh, 
or the lore. <laughs> but, but I even love how the song is used to orchestrate the, the movie. So it's not just a great theme song. It, the, the theme is used almost as a replacement for the James Bond theme. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes a songwriter like Paul McCartney to be able to take on the orchestrating weight of that iconic theme. And so, yeah, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, the bit where um, Bond has revealed to Rosie that he knows she's a double agent. Uh, and he points the gun at her and she's scared. He, you know, it's either going to be, he's gonna, she's either going to be killed by him or by the scarecrow. And he tells her, make your choice. And it syncs perfectly with bum, bum, bum. That's just like a beautiful bit of music yeah. synchrony right there. I love that moment. And all the things we talked about aside, I'm a big fan of this movie. This is one of my earliest Bond movies. Uh, and for all of the jokes I was making about, you know, it being kind of, jumping on the chase craze train that middle sub and J and JW pepper aside that middle chase with the boats, you know, boats shooting across strips of land and flying yeah. into wedding cakes. And it's a really phenomenal set piece. I mean, it's epic. And, and I, I mean, I love um, going into the, the Flea soul club. I love these, the R and B version of the live and the die thing that's great um yeah with B- bj arno singing it it's terrific i, I think it's the only bond. bond song that brings the the song into the uh the world of the film yeah yeah and, and i mean i love um bond refusing a booth because i had a bad turn in a booth <laughs> which is a, a reference to to the earlier scene in the movie um yeah so so there's a lot of you know charm and uh, great sequences and yeah Yafet Koto is just sort of like on fire uh, as Kananga slash Mr. Big um, Mr. was Big. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess this is sort of an honest question were, do you think audiences were surprised when it's revealed that they're one and the same person or do you think it was obvious in 73? Since, since I was not surprised when I was 8 or 9 years old and saw this movie I can't imagine that audiences of the okay. 70s could possibly have been surprised. It's a strange decision. Yeah. There's really no reason for Mr. Big and Kananga to be two separate people other than the fact that Kananga wants, to, I guess, to disguise his uh, criminal activities from his, you know, uh, uh, his United Nations <laughs> duties. But they both walk around with Teehee all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think too many people in the world of the film are fooled. Uh, it's a strange moment for sure. Mechanical armed henchmen are a dime a dozen, John. What are you talking about? <laughs> Red tuxedoed, bald, metal arm. Six foot eight. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's so funny. Uh, but talking about more stepping into the role of Bond here, one thing I kind of noticed um, just in terms of the producers wanting to kind of make the transition a little smooth is that <clears throat> how much this film resembles Dr. No in a lot of ways, mm. the cold opening with the assassinations being carried out that terrific funeral parade in the French quarter, which is inspired way to take yeah. out a spy. I mean, that's great. And that later on we see that happening again and we know what's going to happen. We don't even need to, see, need to see what happens to poor Harry Strutter. We know it's going to happen. And then bond journeying to an Island where there's a secret and then Coral Jr. Is there, of course the book, <laughs> takes place before Dr. No. So it's Coral in the original, but here they make it his son. Uh, but there's a lot of kind of note for note similarities to the first Connery outing that I think they want to sub- maybe subconsciously make you think like, this is a reboot of the series. Like, here we are, here we go leading into the new era with a new actor, but kind of the same thing. 
kind of the same thing that you come to expect. Yeah, and that is an, an interesting aspect of the franchise is that they would often reintroduce familiar elements into a film, um, you know, often in like a different guise or maybe in a different order. Um, but I think they would sort of regress to the mean oftentimes and sort of get their feedback on the ground. Um, I think that's most successful in The Spy Who Loved Me, which really does play like a greatest hits of James Bond past, but I, I love the film anyway. Yeah. And we haven't mentioned the best scene in the movie, the alligator farm. Oh God. Yeah. That, that's a real stunt. That, that, and that's another thing that James Bond of this era really has over even moves of today. Just so many practical stunts that are insane. Like yeah. walking across a pond of actual crocodiles. The stunt's so good, they named the main villain of the movie after you. Yeah. Since the uh, Alligator Farm was owned by Mr. Kananga. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> Russ Kananga. Um, yeah, that's so much fun. And it's it makes you realize, too, that you know the kind of creative process behind writing these films really comes from so many creative minds saying, you know, hey, I stumbled upon this alligator farm. Let's incorporate it into the movie. And just kind of having, you know, whoever is working on the script at the time, Mankiewicz or, uh, or Maibom, whoever it is, just say, write it into the script, find a way to make it happen. And they come up with creative ways to do that. And that's kind of a, not how most movies get made as far as yeah. I understand. And, and I think, you know, it's often a very bad when a film is starts shooting before the script is done. I think when a company of, you know, crew and players are exceptionally professional and skilled as this group was having a deadline of, okay, we know the release date for this movie is like November 15th. Uh, so we have to have a movie out by then. So you just have this group of people who were able to come up with creative solutions to make that movie better. Um, there's obviously faults in that way of making movies and the films will show that. Uh, time and again, but I think it leads to things like having Bond walk across alligator heads, uh, and it's it's awesome. Yeah, when you get it to work, I mean, it's just it becomes magic, really. I mean, yeah. this isn't bringing people in post production, you know, post uh, production saying make the film better, figure out you know lines people can say off screen to make it funnier. It's literally people saying. I want to find exciting things in the world that I can make part of James Bond's world, uh, which will be used even more in the movies we're about to talk about. Yeah. Uh, so when that works, it's just, that's the magic of James Bond right there. Um, how do you feel about Kananga's death? We know Yafikoto was not a fan of it. It's very silly. Uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah. It, I don't know why it needed to be there. I don't know why it's an inflation device that gets swallowed by your big bad and it blows him up like a balloon and explodes him. Um, it's, it's goofy even for this movie. Um, and it just looks bad. I think maybe if the effect was better, um, I, I would be okay with it, but it's, it's just a very unsatisfying conc to con conclusion to such a, an intelligent and menacing character. Mm-hmm. At least it's better than what happens to Whisper, who gets sucked into a couch. <laughs> uh, his ultimate fate. Um, what, this, this contains one of my favorite lines of the entire Bond series. Can you guess what it is? Tell me. Oh, the snake. I forgot. You should never go in there without a mongoose. <laughs> yeah. 
which is what Bond says to a terrified Rosie when she sees the dead snake in his bed in the bathroom. Um, but but you are right about some of the uncomfortableness of the racial profiling of the film. I wish Rosie had been a state of good guy. You know, there was no reason yeah. to make her a bad guy, and she certainly has the sort of speaking of Doctor No, the quarrel problem of you know turning into this frightened you know uh little black person which is you know not the kind of character that we want in a you know strong in, a, in, a, in an era where female bleeds are becoming stronger and having their own character you know it just turns out she's one of the bad blacks as it were and uh and, and not even, imaginative and she's just so physically impressive like she's more muscular than roger moore is and so it would have been so great to have like a badass secret agent sidekick uh, to to Roger Moore's James Bond, but instead she becomes this sort of fumbling, uh, you know, almost obstacle to like an obstacle and annoyance to Roger Moore's progress through the plot. Right, right. Sort of an insult to a black character and a female character at the same time. Yeah. Um, and ruins that, you know, what could have been his, you know, Kirk on Kirk and a horror on Star Trek, you know, the first interracial kiss for a bond in a bond movie yeah. uh, by immediately following it with, you know, ah, I knew you were a bad guy all along. Yeah. I've had, you know, the, I've been on to you, um, but beautiful locations though. You know, it's cool. Mm-hmm. They are in Harlem, they're in Nolans, the Isle of Samanique. I think this is until Spectre. The only time we see James Bond's house in the opening scene that i i do love that that scene um where he makes cappuccino for um for m and you know he's incredibly embarrassed that he has well he of course he has a woman there um but i also love how the film sort of fetishizes a cappuccino maker the same way it would fetishize like a, a missile launcher on the sports car like it's just so exotic uh, but it's it's a, it's a great little introduction to to Roger Moore, um, who who has this device that M even says, "Is that all it does?" M is still unimpressed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. And again, sort of introducing more, not you know, at the casino tables with the cigarette in his hand, getting ready to seduce the woman, but rather you know, in bed at home, even though he has already conquered the woman. Um, but sort of like, you know, in his more vulnerable nighttime is uh, definitely indicative, I think, of what they wanted to do with more character compared to the mm-hmm. Connery. Kind of more of a cozy sort of introduction. Uh, yeah. What else about Live and Let Die? So for you, where does this fall in terms of the Bond movies? Despite your mixed feelings, do you think it's one of the better ones? Um, I mean, no. Um, I, I, is it, I still like it but I think all the sort of uncomfortableness that, that it, it brings to mind, I just can't enjoy it the way I, I, I would like to. What about you? Gotcha. No, I totally understand that. Um, and again, I think it's a huge nostalgia factor for me that I really like this one. Um, before my mind was open to, you know, the problematic sort of nature of it. Um, but I think it's a great introduction to more. I think that, action wise there's a lot to love about it and a lot to not love about it i think the scene where he you know gets into the plane with the the fight the flight uh student goes on way too long and it's kind of uh, a, yeah. a nowhere chase you know that kind of is there for the sake of being there um but 
certainly better than the book. Yes. <laughs> throw that out there. Uh, and it's got a good look. It's got a good rhythm. Uh, doesn't have a lot of fat on it besides scenes like the flight scene that I just mentioned. So I do think of it as more of the, one of the better ones, um, but certainly would call it out on some of the things I wish were a little, done a little bit better, like the Rosie yeah. character, things like that. Um, and I like it better than The Man with the Golden Gun, which we're going into with uh, Christopher, Christopher Lee as the titular villain in more ways than one. He's got the golden gun and also his thrice nippled. <laughs> Won't talk smack on Chris Lee, but uh, Mr. Arminia, what is your what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, um, you know, this might be my least favorite Bond movie. Um, I think you know, Christopher Lee is fantastic, um, but uh, it makes me angry at this movie because it should be better because Christopher Christopher Lee is one of the not just all-time great on-screen villains he's one of the all-time great screen presences like there's nobody with a charisma with a voice with you know just an essence like Christopher Lee brings to the screen so the fact that he's not in a better Bond movie is very frustrating and you know the fact that he basically in World War II lived the life that Ian Fleming wanted to live. Like he was an actual spy. He spoke a panoply of languages. He, he, you know, he was a legit hero in World War II. He killed fascists. Um, And so for him not to be in the greatest spy movie, I think is really unfortunate, but he does get to ask for Tabasco sauce from uh, (laughs) Knickknack. There's that. Yeah, you took the thoughts right out of my brain on this one. Um, I always feel like it's a disservice to Christopher Lee that this film isn't just a little bit better, that it isn't more worthy of his talent uh, entering this world. And my first question about this film has always bothered me. You know, we've got Scaramango on his very cool island, his um, exclusive island that's, you know, hard to find, and he's living living the lap of luxury. But how the hell are they ordering a wax mannequin of James Bond and having it shipped to the islands? <laughs> also, what's up with this movie and people pretending to be previously established wax figures? The sumo wrestlers who jump Bond, who we've you know, previously seen as wax figures, did Bond get the idea from them to do the wax to pretend to be the wax figure of himself at the end of the movie? It's yeah, a weird and, thing that recurs in this film. And in the, yeah, and at the end of the movie he's um, Scaramanga is tricked by James Bond into thinking the actual James Bond is a wax figure. But in order for that to have worked, James Bond would have had to have brought the same suit as the wax figure (laughs) and changed or taken off that suit and then put it on in five seconds. So I don't know how that worked at all without I mean, knickknack seeing it when it's been established that he can yeah supervise yeah, the, the entire yeah area and and speaking of the sumo wrestlers no at no point in this movie does anyone go to japan thank you yes this movie it takes place in thailand, thailand. macau and hong kong <laughs> but i guess all asians are the same also karate in thailand come on i know that they go to a thai boxing tournament at one point but yeah why would they have karate school? Ah, but yeah, exactly yeah, the same yeah. thing. Sumo wrestlers yeah. in Thailand, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The the martial arts school looks like a cut, like a Shaolin kung fu temple. It's populated by 
uh, karate students <laughs> in Thailand. It's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> this definitely is where, you know, the producers being universe, uh, global Bon Vivants who, you know, had Bruce Lee as their, you know, t- their, uh, their uh, martial arts instructor, instructor or took judo lessons from the henchmen from uh, Moonraker uh, mixing their cultures just because they think it's neat. <laughs> yeah. Eastern culture, just throw it all together. Why not? <laughs> and you know, too, uh, I am you know, a Doctor Who fan. I don't know uh, what your stance on Doctor Who is, but the more recent incarnation of the show, one thing I really hate about it is that everybody knows who the Doctor is in this mm-hmm. world now. <clears throat> Before it was, you know, serials where the Doctor would show up at a planet have an adventure and then leave in the TARDIS. And in the more recent uh, series, you know, the doctor just says his name and sends whole armadas of alien ships running because they all know the doctor. I hate that. And I hate that in the more incarnation of bond, everybody knows who James Bond is. Yeah. Diamonds are forever. Tiffany case reacts to the name. Like he's some super famous guy. Uh, The arms dealer in this one, Lazar knows who he is. Miss Andrews knows who he is. Scaramanga can commission a wax model of him. He's kind of worthless as a secret agent if you can call a wax modeling place and say, I'd like one James Bond, please. (laughs) Uh, He even says in the movie, there are a few people who haven't heard of Bond, British Secret Service. (laughs) Well, if he's in the Secret Service, why have you heard of him? Yeah, not secrets. If if criminal organizations know who you are, you're a bad spy yeah <laughs> what is it the line uh, oh it's clint eastwood at the end of in the line of fire uh after he stops john malkovich and uh the reporters ask like you know well what are you doing next and he said well since y'all splattered my picture across the paper i can't really do undercover work anymore yeah. <laughs> same idea no 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 problem for roger moore though apparently <laughs> apparently um, not but speaking of bad spies there's Britt eckland as Agent Goodnight. Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is another thing that's disappointing because, you know, Christopher Lee and Britt Eklund were in the same movie, uh, Wicker Man, mm-hmm. which is one of the greatest horror movies ever made. And she is, in that movie, she is an incendiary fireball of charisma and sexuality. And you could see why she could break the morality of even the, the staunchest of, you know, christians in that film and but in here she's turned into this just this dud of stupid gags imbecile yeah (laughs) an efficient liaisons officer is how she's described how so yeah like the, the the climax hinges on which button her butt presses in a, in, a, in a moment of emergency, it's not great. My God. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> she really is, I mean, without a doubt, in my mind, the worst lead female from any of these films. Just not only is she, you know, an unappealing, unappealing personality, a complete comic effect, dumb, dumb idiot. Yeah. But she literally, literally in the film, jeopardizes the mission i mean they get the solar uh the solex agitator game over right that's it yeah walk away with it and we're done she manages to basically hand it back to scaramanga by getting thrown into his car 
and going off to the island with him. It's like, Jesus Christ, she can't get worse than that. And then almost killing Bond with the laser with her butt. <laughs> and uh, kicking the, the henchman into that uh, pseudo Ken Adam, you know, miniature set. It's just everything she does is egregious. And Bond is annoyed with her throughout the movie. She literally waits in the closet while he, you know, has sex with someone else. To wait her turn. I mean, everything about her is just mm. sets feminism back 20 years. She threatens to resign her commission because she's so jealous over Bond. I mean, come on. But uh, speaking Awful. of speaking of people that Bond has sex with, um, we we do get introduced to Maude Adams in this movie, who I think is is fantastic. She she's not given enough to do in this film but i think she makes a meal of her role of, of this person who's really put into the thumb of the villain of scaramanga and i think we get a, a nice tragic arc of of her character i, I really wish it wasn't a, a better movie because i think that story could have been you know more uh, fleshed out and tragic um but it's it it's probably the most emotionally realized moment um, in the film when we realize that she's dead at the, uh, at the Muay Thai boxing match. Definitely. I, that shocked me the first time I saw this movie. Um, and she def- definitely, if she had more moments like that, then she would be, she should be the main female lead. Let, let's fix this film right now, John, yeah. while we're at it. Okay. Let's make her the main bond woman. Let's have Mary Goodnight get killed and be sitting there at the Thai boxing with her, you know, fixed gaze. Um, and this, is, this would be my suggestion, I think, for Scaramanga, right? Um, because the setup is okay, where he's sort of, you know, he's almost sort of the henchman for Hyphat, who's the main villain. Mm-hmm. And he kind of hijacks the role and he becomes the main villain. But I think it just could have been better executed, you know? I think that you start with the guy being a hitman for this, you know, main, for this main villain who Bond is basically investigating the villain rather than Scaramanga. Like he, we're set up thinking that the villain, that the main guy, the high fat is going to be the guy that Bond is ultimately going to be facing across the table. And then Scaramanga kills him and he takes over. We don't need the MacGuffin with the the, uh, Solix agitator or anything like that. He just becomes the danger. You know, he's, it just becomes apparent that he is the one who is, really the threat to bond more than this guy i don't think you need to to focus on him right away i don't think we need to open the movie with him and his his island taking out the the mobster from the previous movie for some reason or not from the previous movie but from diamonds are forever returning as a mobster the same character i don't even know uh in a a fun house populated by other 1930s gangster cliches it's very weird incredibly weird but instead make it like a twist in the film, like kind of shake up the, shake it up a little bit, you know, kind yeah. of make it a twist in the film that he becomes the main villain. He kills Mary Goodnight. Everybody applauds. And at the end, Bond is sailing away with, uh, with Andrea instead. And I think the, the twist that the golden bullet with 007 and blazing on it was actually sent by Andrea. I think that is a really good twist. And so should have, instigated a plot where it, it was actually Scaramanga versus James Bond and Scarab. And so it would have been very cool to see Scaramanga and James Bond discover each other at around the same time. Um, but instead, because there's so much of the Solex agitator distraction uh, that the impact of that to us, it just is so much uh, lessened. 
Absolutely. I completely agree. Although a cool thing uh, that we hear from Tom Mankiewicz, um, did you know that High Fat is based on Run Run Shaw? No. Yeah, one of the three brothers who was the head of Shaw Studios. Yeah, wow. And uh, Mankiewicz you know, describes him as you know, the first Asian to be knighted, uh, three Rolls Royce with license plates that said Run Run, that he, could, he said he could get you drugs, bazookas, and the best suit in Hong Kong. <laughs> describes an incident where a wow. member of uh, run run's family was kidnapped and the cops found the kidnappers bodies hacked to death in one of his cars. <laughs> but uh, he also donated billions of dollars to educational institutions in uh, Hong Kong and China and lived to be 106 years old. Holy so shit. yeah. Wow. So high fat does not come off as that impressive, but run run Shaw yeah. certainly was a cool template for that character. I'll have to admit that. It, okay. How about this? You actually have run run Shaw or a more um, true to form inspiration for that character. So somebody who seems like a Bond villain, but is actually a philanthropist and then is killed by Scaramanga. And so you, you see the villainy is actually in Scaramanga and that's when him and Bond go after each other. Absolutely. Just, yeah, just give a little spice to that character and make him more interesting and not just some guy who Scaramanga is obviously using who almost invites him to murder him. <laughs> it seems points out to him, you know, where he's going to be laid to rest in his house basically gives him the opportunity, even though he's this billionaire industrialist or whatever he's supposed to be is in a room by himself as a assassin puts his gun together. slowly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the, the, just make him a little less of a dupe than that. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of set pieces that I do really, really like in, in the film. Like I do like the banal objects constructing the golden gun. I yeah. like that a lot. Um, and I do love the tilted queen Elizabeth wreck as the office of, of the mobile office of MI6. I think that's a really great gag. Yeah, that's and awesome. The everybody's sort of tilted sideways as they're doing their normal, very English office business. I think that stuff's great. Oh, definitely. There's no, there's a lot of great stuff uh, in this. I mean, even uh, Fang Na Bay, the island that they use as Scaramanga's getaway, is gorgeous. It's just yeah. an amazing location that they found. Uh, the boat that it ends on is a gorgeous boat. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff in this film. It's definitely one that has things to recommend in it. I mean, I love a lot of Moore's lines in this film. I've yeah. lost my charm, not from where I'm standing. It's a good line. Uh, she describes Scaramanga's tall, slim and dark. He says, so is my aunt. <laughs> I mean, these, are, <laughs> these are good one-liners, good toss-away lines. Um, no, the film is, I mean, there's stuff in the film to recommend without a doubt. And I think it's just a, you know, example of just, they just need to rework the overall idea a little bit more. And they, they were almost, it feels like it's a nudge away from being there and giving Christopher Lee a film that he does, you know, deserved a role that he deserved. This certainly the scene with him and Morse having lunch together. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's amazing. They're incredible together. Um, in, in the stunt, the, the 360, the 360 stunt is unbelievable. Yeah. Of course it's undercut by the st- Stupid slide whistle sound <laughs> effects. I think that is just so emblematic of this film. This in- incredible ingredients uh, just thrown to shit by um, poor execution. I think so that's I, the perfect review of this yeah. film, actually. Yeah. 
that that moment is exactly what this film is. <laughs> An amazing moment undermined by a bad decision. Like Mary Goodnight. <laughs> um, we didn't talk at all about Hervey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's he's great. Uh, like, <laughs> um, I I love that he um even in the final showdown we get little windows into his character. Like he just blatantly tells James Bond, "Oh, if you kill Scaramanga, I get everything he owns." So, you know, cool. Like he's he has his own villainous plot uh, going on in his own head. So, and <laughs> I think that's an a. Uh, a great little ingredient in, in the film. I've never known how to read that because obviously that's what he tells everybody who comes to the island and Scaramanga even says to him, Hey, you got close. You almost killed me and inherited all my stuff. Um, but then he is vengeful and wants to kill Bond at the end. Yeah. Why should he care if he just inherited all of Scaramanga's stuff? Uh, so even that is a little bit like, huh? <laughs> or maybe it's just a thing he says to people who who Scaramanga is about to kill just to mess with them. Well, I, that's what I thought. But then they have that exchange together where Scaramanga says, "You almost got me this time. You almost, you know, inherited my stuff." So maybe he just doesn't want it. Maybe he really loves Francisco Scaramanga. Yeah. <laughs> um. So okay, that's that one, and I'm glad. But you, you did. Oh, you know what? I should ask you. You called it your least favorite. Did you mean of the whole series of Bond, or your least favorite of the Roger Moore, or the seventies Bonds? Um, it's this one and uh, Die Another Day are probably neck and neck for my least favorite of the whole series. Yeah, yeah, oh, wow. uh, for for different reasons uh, for each one, but yeah. Interesting. I definitely think it's my least favorite of the Roger Moores. Mm-hmm. But putting it against some of the more unfortunate ones later in the series. Yeah. I don't know. But uh but yeah, it's I think I think though we agree that's one that could with a little improvement could have been much better. Yeah, yeah, I think with with and we'll hopefully get to that era later, but I think Die Another Day would require a like a page one rewrite where I think <laughs> right, with, right. With, with some tweaking a man with golden gun could be a classic and certainly there's no one like christopher lee and die another day so. yeah definitely not yeah on to, to offend it there's also not a merry good night <laughs> it's not a predicament yeah so we move on from that to one of the biggest bond films in many ways the poster advertised as bond and beyond and i gotta say it lives up to that. I think that this, the spy who loved me in 1977 is the quintessential bond in a lot of ways, just because it puts so much on the screen. So many beautiful ladies, so many malicious baddies uh, has that Lotus that turns into a submarine, the ultimate gadget, right? I mean, in the last movie, golden gun bond didn't even have a gadget or a car for that matter. And this gives him the ultimate car slash gadget. You got Ken Adams, uh, Ken Adam going fucking insane with these sets. There's just s- the scope of this movie is huge. I think they really swung for the fences with this one and went over it. And I know some people who aren't a fan of it, which always surprised me because to me, it always seems like if you're a, ba- if you're a Bond fan, you gotta love the spy who loved me. How could you not? Yeah. I I understand how a Bond fan might k- kind of, frown at the spy who loved me because it almost is sort of a beat for beat remake of uh, you only live twice 
um, you know, the, the villains are very similar. The, the ending set piece is very similar. Um, but I, it just executes everything so well. I think the dialogue fits Roger Moore so perfectly. Um, I love the relationship between James Bond and Agent Triple X. I love Jaws. <laughs> all the all the Egypt stuff is great. Um, the the scale models for the submarines are done at four fifths scale. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're, they're practically real submarines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're basically submarines. Um, there's like a fifty foot model of a super tanker that they use. It's just everything you want from big budget filmmaking in the seventies is in this movie. And, you know, and, um, and Roger Moore just looks so good in, in a naval uniform too. Just like just silly aesthetic pieces like that. And Holy shit. A union Jack parachute. Holy shit. Indeed. Like, that is one of the best moments of the franchise bar none. When that theme plays as that parachute opens, it's just like, I, I want to applaud every time I see that. Uh, you wouldn't be human if you didn't want to jump up and give a high five to whoever's, yeah. whoever's sitting close enough to you. Um, if bond movies at this point, were kind of making the transition from spy thriller to full on action adventure films. This is the Zenith for sure. And just that example, but all the stunts in this movie, I think both conceptually and in execution are sublime, yep. you know, not to knock the last three movies, but the franchise just kind of regains its personality in a way with the spy who loved me and things like the opening parachute, which, um, you know, it's been written about in several different places. They hired this guy, Rick Sylvester, who was not a professional stuntman. He was just a ski base jumper who thought he could do it. I <laughs> kind of thought about doing it in Yosemite park. And so they bring him up to, uh, uh, Mount Asgard and mm-hmm. Baffin Island, which is 5,800 feet of vertical cliff face <laughs> with this idea that, you know, uh, was devised by Michael Wilson, filmed by John Glenn, who told Rick, don't forget, when you do this stunt, you are James Bond. Yeah. And that's the feeling that you get when you see this executed so beautifully. And And the guy they hired to do that stunt, he stayed there for another month to do rock climbing on his own. Like, of course, (laughs) of course, that's the guy you hired to to beat James Bond's stunt double. He is James Bond. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and I think that they really did take time and effort to put emotional stakes between the relationship of James Bond and the Bond girl who's – a secret agent just as confident as James Bond, uh, whose fiance James Bond killed in the line of duty. And so it's these two people who know the stakes of the um, profession that they've chosen, but they keep um, engaging in, you know, emotional entanglements at every chance they get. And that's, you know, a flaw they both share and they're sort of on a collision course, both, you know, professionally and emotionally. um, And they, are able to overcome that for some sweet seventies lovemaking. Uh, but, but it, it does like actually inject some romantic tension into the franchise, which I think was really lacking in the Roger Moore movies up to this point. Definitely. She's yeah. She's blows the other bond uh, lead actresses away at this point. Uh, I have some, I've heard some people, you know, say, well, well by the end she's captured by the villain. So, it's like, what do you think happens to Bond in these movies? He's constantly being yeah, captured yeah, by yeah. the villains. 
um, yeah, I think she's great. I think Barbara Bach is just a just a phenomenal looking woman, great, perfectly cast for this film. Um, and uh, just to kind of talk about what you're saying, how this is sort of a greatest hits Bond movie, uh, besides recycling You Only Live Twice, <clears throat> it has the uh, stealing submarines from the sea, but also has the classic train fight from uh, from Russia with Love sort of revisited already yep. at the end of uh, Live, and, uh, uh, Live and Let Die. Gets another retooling here. Jaws sort of becomes the first henchman since Odd Job to use his signature feature to actually threaten Bond. You know, Teehee needed alligators, knickknack, you know, needed whatever. Um, and Winton Kid were gay for some reason, but, you know, this is like the first time where a henchman, you know, for a while really becomes someone whose physical, you know, oddity was also his weapon. And it, it also like never makes any sense because he's such a huge, incredibly strong, you know, almost superhuman person. He could rip off anybody's head that he wanted <laughs> to, but instead he chooses to press his teeth onto their neck. Uh, it, it's um, not necessary. It's a signature move. Yeah, it's his closing move. <laughs> there's there's one moment. Um, when he is pursuing the sort of link in the intelligence chain that Bond is pursuing uh, through the pyramids and he kills the guy and Bond finds the body, ruffles through his clothes and, oh, it's an address book. Oh, here, here's Fakash at this so-and-so club. It, Jaws intentionally left that address book in his suit coat because he knew James Bond would do the same thing, go to that club, and then Jaws could then kill James Bond and get the microfilm that is the McGovern of this movie at the same time. So he's not just a big hulk of a scary-looking guy. He actually has thought. He actually has agency as a henchman. And so that's what makes him more dangerous than any other henchman previously. And that's why I appreciate... Um, his portrayal as silly as his signature murder uh, method is. Uh, he's somebody that is an actual worthy rival to James Bond. That's great. I think they might've lost something like that uh, in the next movie, but I do uh, yeah, appreciate it here. Um, and I appreciate Moore's chemistry too, with Richard Keel uh, really yeah. makes that last scene where Bond look, makes him look up so he can, the magnet can hook his teeth yeah. uh, work because, you know, they just have a great back and forth together. Yeah. Wordless one, which is, you know, fun. yeah. And, you know, later in the movie, whenever they, you know, encounter each other, it just like, there's this look of exhaustion on Roger Moore's face. <laughs> like, Oh, this guy again, I can't kill him. <laughs> uh, we got to talk about the book a little bit because the book <laughs> This, this book, the book called The Spy Who Loved Me, I should say, it was a failed experiment that even Fleming barred from reprints while he was alive and yep. refused to sell the film rights during his lifetime. Uh, Lois Maxwell described it as positively pornographic. <laughs> uh, we got an article on The Pink Smoke by Paul Cooney that perfectly deconstructs everything wrong with the book, which <laughs> follows... Uh, a backwards young lady as she travels up to upstate New York... Uh, Canadian, a young Canadian lady who's had various sexual uh, foibles and heebie-jeebies uh, winds up at a hotel with two gangsters named Slugsy and Horror 
who are <laughs> repeatedly threatened to rape her and, and murder her. And then Bond just happens to show up in the final third of the book uh, to, to deal with them. It's a really ridiculously bad, it's definitely the worst Bond novel. Uh, and the first one that they took practically nothing from for the movie, obviously they took the character of Jaws from one of the descriptions of one of the two bad guys as having uh, being really large and having sharp teeth. But uh, they very wisely uh, hired Chris Wood to write a completely original screenplay and then novelize it. He novelized both this and Moonraker since they were so completely different from the Fleming uh, source material. Uh, one thing that Chris Wood was not happy with was when the Lotus comes out of the water onto the beach and uh, Roger Moore t- takes the fish and drops it out of the window. He improvised that joke. Chris Wood hated it. He thought that that was the scene that made this movie over the top. It was it, Roger Moore's decision to make that little gag on the beach. That that gag, though, it it doesn't make any sense because it implies that water filled the sub which would make it a failure um but i he came in through the air conditioning yeah sure um but roger moore delivers that drop of the fish so perfectly like it's a, oh he is a legit comic actor like just the timing he has with just that physical motion that expression of the silliness of the gag is just so on point that i can't help but forget the illogic of it in that moment that is true you know what really doesn't make sense though um when the lotus first pitches into the water right and it's revealed to be a submarine anya has this look of complete terror on her face but then later on she reveals that she knew it was a submersible because she stole the blueprints so why would she react like that (laughs) she was trying to keep it secret that she <laughs> knew. That then why didn't she just tell him? <laughs> <laughs> That's always bothered me. But no, yeah, it's yeah. fine. It's yeah. fine. Like everything else, it's fine. Everything in this movie, I think, makes up for any small flaws. It's just just its scale and its epicness. Uh, the car cruising around the, the hairpin bends of Sardinia, you know, in that great chase with the helicopter before they go into the water. Uh, the big uh, uh, battle with the, where they release all the submarine captives and everybody fights to yeah. defeat uh, Stromberg at the end of the movie. It's just action-packed, and it's so much fun. And the, the cinematography in this thing is just so astounding. It's Claude Oh, the great Noir. Claude Renoir, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was, you know, the, what is it, the, the grandson of... Nephew uh, of Jean Renoir. Uh, Right, uh, um, I think it's I think it's the grandson of Pierre August Ren- Ren- Renoir. All right, but Jean Renoir, the filmmaker, yeah, is nephew. Yeah, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, I, I was going. <laughs> I was going even. You're going even further back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but like you know, there's there's a scene, even in just incidental, like like there's a walk talk between uh, Moore and the Minister of Defense, as you know. Moore is just killing it in a Navy uniform and they're walking along and, you know, there's a sub behind them just keeping track with the shot. It's amazing. Um, when the villainous Bond girl, uh, Naomi shows up when they're in Sardinia, like she just sort of like is completely on fire as she comes out, like in a, a, like this sheer shirt and a bikini as this gorgeous bay is behind her. Just, it's an, 
like a breathtaking shot of just scenery and Bond girl and just it's like everything you want in a James Bond movie of you know beautiful people beautiful locations um, and gadgetry in just one shot and so amidst all the action and over the top you know extravagance there is some really beautiful artistry in the way the film is shot oh absolutely I can't believe Renoir never did another one because this one is so technically perfect in so many ways I mean, we're talking about the guy who not only shot Jock Becker movies and uh, shot a bunch of his uncle's films like Tony and the River and the Golden Coach and Lena and Her Men, but he shot Barbarella, for God's sake. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you're right. Even everything, everything is the attitude that you want for Bond. And again, when you think of that great poster and that great tagline where it's Bond and beyond, it's like it really is. It really is taking Bond as far as you possibly can. And I know they tried to top that with the next movie. Um, But I think this is the limit of that. You can take Bond if you're going to go. And and again, I think it's, 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 it's it's that same thing where they should have had the slide whistle to the um, the stunt man with golden gun. And that's where the whole problem with that movie in a nutshell for this one, I think uh, the fish, what you just said about the fish being dropped out of the, the Lotus is, perfect it, it doesn't mar that scene it, it's the yeah. perfect tone and this is one of the few bond films that really has a perfect balance in the overtopness and the humor to the real world stuff like the scene we were talking about with uh, where he she mentions Teresa bond and he has that reaction or the fact that her lover was killed by james bond and she swears she's going to kill him when the mission is over everything just works so beautifully in this film and it, it, you know, there's this wonderful sequence between uh, Anya, Bond, and Jaws in the Luxor uh, temple as the, there's just a, this cat and mouse. And, and of course, there's the, the, the classic cat and mouse that happens with the, uh, the sort of pyramid light show. That it's very, it's so strange and eerie. Like it takes something that we're very familiar with, like the pyramids, and introduces these elements that we're not quite sure about, like you know the the lighting becomes very strange and otherworldly because of this performance and so the public nature of the monuments turn it into this incredible like private and intimate chasing between these characters just because of of the the, the context that is presented in and it's you know it's presenting these maybe the most recognizable buildings on the planet in a completely new light. And, you know, it it takes a really singular film to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it too was just things falling the right way for this film to happen. You know, Guy Hamilton was supposed to come back and direct it, but he stepped down because apparently the Salkins offered him Superman. He was expecting to go into production and do Superman. Uh, And John Glenn, you know, who shot the, opening stunt and you know again did the editing and some first uh, unit work I came out and said with guy hamilton we never would have been able to do half of these things because he was very he wanted to be in control of everything and he would never yeah. let anyone else come up with an idea or do their own thing uh but lewis gilbert was more experimental and was more willing mm-hmm. to let them kind of go in these crazy uh, places that they wanted to go to so i think you know getting gilbert on board for this one really was a lot was a piece of luck yeah. there this happened of course um uh this, this was the official harry salzman cubby broccoli business divorce happened around this time uh the two men you know apparently were 
at each other's throats so often they couldn't even be in the same room together. Uh, people would have to literally walk across the street to go from one of their offices to the next to get business decisions made. And they were basically switching movies in terms of who was going to be the online onset producer because they didn't want to be around each other. So finally Saltzman had enough and apparently his wife also uh, had some health problems. So decided to sell yeah. his half of the bond uh, franchise to UA for way too little money. It was something like 30 yeah. some million dollars and he easily could have gotten much, much more. So it's sort of the end of an era uh, marks the end of an era here but at the same time kind of again reaches the the franchise just at its absolute peak in a lot of ways certainly during certainly in the middle of the 70s i think yeah, and you know i i think that i that just one anecdote um tom makewood said that if you wanted to get your scene you know your contribution to the screenplay in a movie you would tell cubby or saltzman that the other one hated your scene. And so I get that son of a bitch hates this scene. Well, then it's in the movie. <laughs> Probably work um, vice versa too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, but, we love it. Oh, cut it out then. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, as much, you know, over the top grandiosity as, as in this film, there's little details. Like I love the inclusion of general Gogol in the movie and his sparse, you know, monasterial, office is such a contrast to the English office. And I, I love that detail. And I love the fact that um, he calls M miles and M calls him Alexi. Hmm. Like that, like, Oh, these two guys know each other. There is this professional respect in the spy world. Like I, so you just immediately like this head of the KGB. Like he's almost a, you know, warm uncle. Um, and so it, it allows you to really, hate uh strongberg a lot easier because you, you like both agent triple x and and her boss that's great yeah it's funny that when we were talking about from rush with love and how specter you know used the distrust of the cold war to kind of pit people against each other at this era of the bond film where the cold war is kind of much colder than it was back in the 60s um what you have is sort of this mutual professional respect and you're not really sure who the, who the good guys are. You know, the roles were the, the lines aren't as clearly drawn. And I think that's another thing to talk about the personality of Moore's bond being a little bit more laid back and kind of yeah. waiting to see which way the wind is blowing, you know, that he's not somebody who's going to go charging in looking for his prey. He's someone who's going to assess the situation and kind of be a little bit more patient and take his time. Roger Moore would never, for example, um, play chicken with himself in a mirror, you know, like he's someone who would analyze that situation. And for the bigger end of that, I think I, that speaks really well to what you're saying with Gogol being a great presence in these films as someone who's, you know, Hey, I'm trying to do right by my government the way that you guys are, you know, we don't necessarily at odds with each other. We both just want the same thing for our country. Yeah. That's terrific. Yeah, and, and I love the, the chemistry that, you know, Bond and Anya have with each other. Like, well, there's just so much, you know, nonsense with, with them talking about uh, Soviet survival techniques and, and sharing, like, bodily warmth. And I do I do love the exchange. Um, and she says, you needn't worry about me, Mr. Bond. I went on, on a survival course in Siberia. And his response is, yes, I believe a great many of your countrymen do. Uh, which is obviously a dig at the gulag system in in the Soviet Union. But um, it's also the, 
it's the most Roger Moore way of saying, yes, we are enemies while also being real charming while doing it. Yeah, it's perfect. She's definitely the best of the female leads uh, since Tracy and on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. While the other, you know, there are things to commend about the other performances since then, the roles just aren't written anywhere near as proactively as Anya's role is, where she's doing her own thing and could basically do this adventure without James Bond. You know, she could definitely stick up, stand up to yeah. the task. Yeah, but, she even has a sort she's, of she's like, there. <laughs> like, even when when we first meet her, there's like a, a a misdirect where we think the man in the bed is the secret agent, but she has to sort of tell him uh, that you know she's on a mission uh, yeah. and so we're you know from the get-go we believe that she's capable of as much if not more than than james bond and i love that she gets the opportunity to one-up him when she you know describes the, the look the next location they're going to go to it is sergeant dinia not corsica like mm-hmm. uh, james bond says so yeah there's uh no no amount of praise is too much for for her character yeah she technically defeats bond because yeah. she she gets it, she knocks him out, she leaves him there like a chump, and they just happen to be teamed up after that. You know, it's, yeah, he, she yeah, wins when, in first place. She defeats when Bond. Uh, when M asks, "Are you familiar with um, are you, are you familiar with the major?" His, his response is familiar enough to know what cigarette brand she smokes, because he was just knocked out by her <laughs> spy gadgetry. I've forgotten how terrific that introduction is. Imagine a James Bond film calling out the audience for being sexist. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and there's a pair of wonderful ski lodges in the opening scene. I love James Bond on skis. James oh, Bond yeah. in the snow is where it's at. Um, James Bond in a ski lodge next to a fire on a bare rug. I'll I'll hang out there for two hours just by itself. But and the fact that we get an also a spy movie along with that, oh sure, great. I'd even say just Bond in the snow in general. Yeah, you know, I love Dalton in the snow in Living Daylights. He doesn't even need to ski. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. And Jaws fights a shark. I mean, there's so yeah. much, so much fun in this movie. I can't even, <laughs> uh, can't even quantify it. It's so terrific. And and uh, the city of Atlantis. That that underwater base, another Ken Adam, the exterior and the interior designed by Ken Adam, you know, his uh, that that wonderful like set of, you know, surrounded by an aquarium in, in the interior of the base. Um, yeah, when the windows come up and it's just yeah. the sea, that's amazing. God. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so and uh, all praise to Derek Meddings, who's the who's in charge of all the miniature work on these films, just brilliant, brilliant stuff. If I if I had if someone bent my arm like like James Bond does to Andrea in Man with the Golden Gun, and said you got to name a flaw of this movie, I guess I would say Stromberg is the flaw, and not even particularly that he's bad. He's just less great than some of the other villains from this era, yeah. and he does have the excellent name Kurt Jurgens, so we got to give him that yeah. ultimately. Yeah, he, he's he's a big weirdo, and he gets to talk about how he's going to start a new civilization under the sea. Um, but coming uh, between Scaramanga and Hugo Drax, I think he he suffers just a little bit, especially because it's like he, he drops the he drops the gallon to the shark tank in front of the two guys, 
and then lets them leave and then blows them up in the helicopter. Well, that's a waste of a helicopter, isn't yeah. it? That's like, uh, that's like Lao Shea in uh, Temple of Doom sending Indiana Jones off in his airplane to crash. You're wasting a whole airplane. Just get on the plane and shoot him. What's the problem? <laughs> but we do get those two guys shaking hands at a job well done right before they get blown up. <laughs> I know, so right when they moment. think they're in the clear. That's terrific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just, you know, if you can afford to waste a helicopter, go for it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carolyn Monroe, just a terrific presence in this film, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. Even though she's not in it nearly as much as Anya, she's just super cool character. And when she turns up and she waves a bond from the helicopter in the middle <laughs> of the chase, then they acknowledge each other. That's just... That's the Roger Moore Bond right there, yeah. you know, that moment. Ah, uh, so it's murder then. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, we got to stop talking about The Spy Who Loved Me because we, <laughs> we're just not going to stop, I think, talking about the awesomeness. I can think I could safely say we're fans of this one. Indeed. We are in agreement on this one for sure. Um, so one of the biggest and most explosive Bond movies ends with uh, a curious male choir rendition of its <laughs> theme song. And we're told that James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. But then a little movie called Star Wars came along, and they decided to shoot Bond into space with Moonraker. Bring us to the end of the decade in 1979. Um, initial thoughts on Moonraker, sir. Um, I definitely think when I first saw this movie, like when I was a teen, teenager, you know, when I, when I thought it was too cool for school, I was like, this is dumb. James Bond doesn't belong in space. I'm right with uh, you. <laughs> uh, but as I get older, the more, the more and more I, I like it. Like it, it, it is almost a remake of, of the spy who loved me, you know, uh, you know, the, a crazy villain who's going to establish his own civilization uh, by killing everybody on the planet. But I, I think there are just a lot to be said for. There's so many uh, great locations. Um, the the stupidest Bond girl name, Holly <laughs> Goodhead. Which we can't blame Ian Fleming for even. <laughs> oh boy. Um but I, I like her character at least uh, because, you know, she's, it, it, even though it is a bit of a rehash of Anya, she's a CIA agent who's, um, who has her own sort of agency uh, in the film. She has her own gadgets. She has her own plan. And so it's interesting to see her and Bond go for, you know, the same sort of uh, tete-a-tete. Um, and and I, I think Hugo Drax, is a is a great villain he has some of the best villain lines in in the franchise um james bond you appear with a tedious certainty of an unload season see that some harm comes to him yeah (laughs) that shit's great oh and um one of the most beautifully photographed fights in uh james bond history is in the, the clock tower uh, just yeah. when, when they're sort of bathed in that like blue light, it it just uh, an amazing sequence. And you know, Roger Moore isn't known for his physical dexterity when it comes to fight choreography, and so anytime you're sort of uh, juice up a, a fight sequence with him, it it, it really pays off. You just put tons of shelves with breakable shit around them. Yeah, that you can get thrown into. <laughs> Um, I had the same thought when I was a kid. This was my least favorite Bond movie for quite a while. Um, 
for the same well for the same reason that I thought going to space was dumb, but really also uh, even before they get to space, the pace of this movie is really slow in comparison yeah. to a lot of the other films. It really takes a long time to get anywhere. Um, and I think that was the reason I didn't like it when I was younger because it's just like, especially if you're comparing it to something like Spy Who Loved Me, which is just thrill a minute, you know, even when there's not an action scene, the chemistry between Bond and Anya is enough that, you know, you're just enticed the entire time. In this one, it's really deliberately paced, which is weird since it's, you know, the same people making the movie. Um, but like you, I've come to appreciate it more as I've gotten older. And I think that my assessment of it is that unlike other bonds that are overall really good in spite of a few bad scenes, like you only live twice. I think Moonraker doesn't seem like a great movie overall, but has lots of really great scenes. The pre-credits opening with the parachutes, the centrifuge scene, Drax having the whole building redone overnight somehow. Um, the, uh, the boat chase, uh, just the introduction of Drax on his Steinway piano playing Chopin with the Doberman Pinchers who don't eat their steaks until he gives the signal. You know, just there's so many great little moments in this film that uh, you can't, you kind of can't deny them. <laughs> you know, there's just, there's a lot of good stuff. There's scary scenes in this film too. Um, even when I was a kid, I appreciated the scene set in Rio at the carnival where uh, Jaws is slowly walking down the alley in that clown costume uh, to, to kill Bond's uh, sidekick. And it's, it's like it suddenly becomes a giallo film at that point, you know, and it kind of comes out of nowhere and doesn't really mesh well with the overall giddiness of the film, but it works really well. And the fight scene that you were just describing too, just how beautiful that stained glass window is that they're fighting next to. There are a lot of, little things to appreciate about the film. So even though after it's over and you kind of feel like you got to put your brain back in your head a little bit, yeah. uh, you can still appreciate the artistry of those little individual moments. And Oh, the dog, the dog's chasing Corinne through the woods. is another yeah, really scary. Scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a legit terrifying sequence. Yeah. And you really feel sorry for her. Cause all she, all she did was realize that she was working for a supervillain, try to do the right thing. And so she was devoured by dogs. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, there's some, yeah, some of the locations in this film are absolutely gorgeous. Like the, what is it? Uh, the Chateau Valley Vicomte is the real location for Hugo Drax's estate, and you know those interiors of you know the, this Baroque marble hall with you know Botticelli's on the wall is just incredibly gorgeous. Um, the the vistas of Rio are used spectacularly. I mean, when they're on the cable car, you just you know you can see for miles of these gorgeous mountains and and you know the bay. Um, and and the use of, of Carnival is is outstanding. Uh, and all the locations, the yeah, Ikechu Falls, just yeah. are amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. Yeah, and just the the idea of you know hang gliding across you know that gigantic waterfall, mm-hmm. you don't appreciate probably how death defying that stunt is because you know hang gliding wasn't exactly a established um, extracurricular activity uh, in the mid seventies, and so for somebody to you know put their <laughs> get in like a wind powered glider 
over a gigantic waterfall is like, if you think about it, that's insane. Uh, but Hey, it's for a movie. <laughs> Let's do that. Oh, yeah. and because that waterfall is at the border of Argentina and Brazil, and because of how strong the winds are, production didn't know what country <laughs> the guy would land in. And so they had to get permission from both Argentina and Brazil to, to film just in case the stuntman would fall in the incorrect nation. <laughs> wow. You know, it's, it's a cliche, I know, to kind of complain about, you know, the loss of practical effects and stunts, stunt work and things in the age of, you know, digital. But goddamn, <laughs> you know, things yeah. like the opening of uh, Spy Who Loved Me, uh, the opening of this film where they had to shoot, I think it was 85 times to shoot people, stuntmen jumping out of the plane to capture that, what, two-minute yeah. uh, aerial shot of them uh, fighting in the in midair, trying to grab each other's parachutes. Yeah, they had to invent a new camera so that the cameraman who was wearing it on his head it didn't break his neck when he pulled his parachute. Yeah, good idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just the technical innovation and just, uh, again, sort of the idea of just coming up with a great concept and executing it perfectly is something that, you know, is just, just lost these days. <laughs> it's just something that is yeah. of the past. Uh, and that you really appreciate, especially about this era of Bond. Um, some of the less things to, to, to not appreciate quite so much in this film. Um, Bond's gondola. <laughs> uh, the main thing I have with that is, you know, even if you accept that Drax knows exactly where Bond's going to be and can hire a guy to lay in a coffin in a boat, and then pop up and throw a <laughs> knife at him. Did Bond know that was going to happen? And that's why he has a high-powered gondola that can go up on land just in case. I mean, the finger, the fake fin- fingerprints in Diamonds Are Forever, at least you could see where that would be coming handy. But a whole gondola? <laughs> Supercharged gondola that you just, just happen to have when you're floating along in case something like that could happen. And so, yeah, is bond going to go like undercover in venice by going on a gondola by himself as if that's not inconspicuous <laughs> exactly. enough. um yeah it's likely to ship him a gondola where he needs to be as it is to ship a full bond wax model to yeah. scare <laughs> and yeah and that whole sequence of like people reacting to the gondola on land like there's just so many shots of people like you know looking at their wine bottle and be like oh i better pour this out because obviously it's inducing hallucinations into what i'm seeing and then the very infamous pigeon double take um which john glenn takes full 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 blame for by the way (laughs) i'm i'm not as bothered by that as i am the end of the opening uh, sequence where Jaws falls into a circus tent to circus music. Because I think because <laughs> that bit turns a thrilling action set piece into a goofy punchline and turns Jaws, who should be a menacing henchman, into a punchline. And, Which this and, film definitely yeah. and does so, intentionally. Sure. Yeah, that, that kind of cuts off at the knees any sort of tension his subsequent appearances have, whereas the pigeon double take as dumb as it is um is over and done with in half a second yes true <laughs> that is one thing about it also the dog reaction shot which you know 
movies movies have never really been hurt by dog reaction shots i think we can yeah. all agree on that. yeah <laughs> uh yeah jaws gets a girlfriend named dolly uh and i was we were just discussing this on twitter uh the mandela effect and you know of people who swear she had braces uh when they saw it for the first time i'm one of those people i could swear to god she had big silver braces and that's the reason they fall in love ladies and gentlemen is because jaws likes her teeth yeah uh and i can't believe i can't believe in reality this universe this alternative reality we live in where trump is president that apparently (laughs) is not the reality yeah it's yeah, if she had braces, we'd have President Bernie Sanders. But <laughs> um, it's yeah, it, I think it just seems so obvious that we've all constructed in our minds the the better choice. Um, yeah, because I had that Mandela effect memory. My dad had that Mandela effect memory, so it just seems so so odd that they w- would not um, go for that. I think also because she's silent in this movie which is weird um (laughs) so and also because jaws is silent up until the very end as well so i think it's another way that we can make those two characters parallel but yeah it's it's another just strange uh bond happenstance i guess yeah it's definitely on the same page as giving bond the spaghetti western look for some reason which no matter how many times i've seen this movie i can never remember the context of why he's dressed in a in a serap i have no idea and the magnificent seven music is such an odd choice Um, kind of reflecting the the use of lawrence of arabia and the previous uh, movie in the desert yeah um but i I love the the location shots in that sequence because that is a that in brazil the exterior is a is a building in brazil but when they go into an interior shots that's a at a convent in venice which always makes me giggle the the thought of ben uh of james bond in a convent um and you know all, all that stuff with you know the monks doing judo and and uh mannequins being melted by lasers uh, i get a kick out of all that stuff yeah yeah um no it's still fun i I think you can agree most of the stuff in this movie that's silly is still fun um comes at the expense of the jaws character but little little jokes still work like the fish being tossed out of the lotus it's uh yeah it's it still works for the film in terms of the balance um what else the ambulance driver sticking out of the billboard girl's mouth is that a from russia with love reference you think maybe um i've never put the two together until this time but it's like oh it's another billboard with the villain stuck in the in the mouth (laughs) could possibly be a callback yeah i mean you know that you can make you know 12 or 13 movies uh gags are gonna reappear i guess um (laughs) yeah there's I don't know. There's just so much um, product placement in, in this movie. It, this is where it really becomes egregious and, and a little too obvious. So I, I think that gag is the result of, of that. Could be. Could be. Um, what else? So when they do get to space, what are your thoughts on that? Um, in terms of special effects, in terms of sort of the very idea Bond yeah. just casually headed up into space to beat the bad guy. Drax's uh, death is definitely cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think everything involving Drax can't not be cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael Lonsdale uh, is, is fantastic as, as Drax and him, anytime he gets to give a speech is, is great, but you know, the, the space sequences are not star Wars. Uh, you the effects have aged, uh, but I, I still think it's cool. Um, it, even if the, the, the way they simulate uh, zero gravity, just, okay, everybody just moves slower. That's a little not effective now that we know how, you know, zero gravity actually looks because, you know, without gravity, you actually move faster because there's no gravity to slow you down. These films will never get gravity right. Yeah. It's yeah. fake moon landers or people who are actually in orbit. Nobody knows how to move correctly. <laughs> It's it's also um, I don't know I, I like the idea of Bond going up against somebody who whose goal is like physical per, per, perfection and the the uni, unity of genetic um, like he has he has this vision of physical and genetic perfection and that Bond is like that's total bullshit what are you doing um, and so I, I I enjoy that aspect of taking down somebody who's advocating for physical per- perfection. So even if this franchise has sort of cast people for their physical perfection in the past and continues to do so, uh, I enjoy that this villain is somebody who is advocating for that and, and bond is, is going to bring that plan to its knees. With that in mind, it's sort of appropriate, I guess that Jaws does the, reverse heel turn and you know yeah. kind of decides that he wants to side with bond because bond is the one with the just cause you know and he's yeah um as hard as it is to believe that Drax could find all these people who were cool with killing everybody on earth and yeah uh banging in space um once jaws finally kind of gets the idea that he does fit to the grand scheme it becomes sort of a meta thing of this the sidekick with the weird abnormality kind of coming into his own and kind of standing up for himself in a weird way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's all sorts of cult leaders throughout history that have got their followers to do all sorts of insane things. And so if you're a cult leader who is also a billionaire, I can sort of buy that you get people to come into space with you and start a new world, you know, as kind of tragic. And, you know, imagine if Charles Manson had $10 billion, like what, what would he have done? Right, or Jim Jones, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He would have headed up there instead of down south. Um, on a bittersweet note, this was Bernard Lee's final turn as M uh, before he passed away. You know, it's, it's I love Bernard Lee. Uh, to me, uh, of all, you know, the debates of who's the best Bond and, you know, who's the best Bond girl, to me, it's like the only thing that matters for the most part is like, you know, Desmond Llewellyn is Q, Lois Maxwell is Monty Penny. Bernard Lee is M. Like that is just something you just don't fuck with. So as much as I appreciate, you know, Judy Dench, Ray Fine, and everybody kind of taking over the role, I'm always going to think those are the guys. And so it's sad to read about, you know, Bernard Lee's alcoholism that he could barely function sometimes on set, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and he was, that he was tormented while he was, you know, giving us this joy of this terrific straight man character to bonds, especially to Roger Moore, even more so than Sean Connery, because, Roger Moore would only Roger Moore's bond would only be flipping around him and you know cause him to want to tear his hair out. Um, but in this movie particularly, I like that they have a mutual respect when 
against all odds, Drax, you know, makes Bond look like a fool and humiliates him. As soon as Bond produces the proof, him is like, okay, I believe you. It's like that yeah. moment in Phantasm, you know, where he pulls out the finger and the, that's moving and the, Jody says, okay, I believe you. Let's go do this. You love that repartee between them. Yeah. Uh, when M has been so wrong in the past when it comes to Bond and when he said Mary Goodnight was a good agent. <laughs> it's good for him to be on Bond's side. It's really kind of a nice send-off, I think, for him. Yeah, sort of yeah especially since you know, there's this sort of running gag of Bond being an expert in everything, you know, from fine wine to butterflies. And it causes M to sort of roll, roll his eyes and say things like, you know, I, I wish uh, Scaramanga had a contract out on you, and so for him, for him to really uh, get behind James Bond and, and to to see that affection in in full force um, is a nice payoff for their relationship. That's one of the immortal lines from Bernard Lee: "Is who would pay to have me killed?" And I'm going to butcher it, but it's jealous husbands, outraged, humiliated tailors, outraged chefs, or humiliated chefs. Yeah, <laughs> terrific. Yeah. All right, so um, for, farewell to Bernard Lee and for, farewell to the 70s for Bond. Last thoughts on these five films and the evolution Bond was taking in this point in time? Well, oh, um, I, I do think uh, Moonraker has the best ending line of, of any James Bond because uh, the defense minister of England says, my God, what's Bond doing? And Q says, I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Which I don't know why he would say that at all. Uh, but the fact these very two old, dignified Englishmen are saying this incredibly juvenile sexual pun, it just makes me Oh, but he doesn't so know happy. it's a pun. That's why it yeah, works. Because exactly. he's not looking at the screen. He's actually yeah. looking at where the yeah. rocket's heading. I mean, yeah. that's just, that's, that just nails it. That's yeah. a brilliant delivery. Yeah. And then Roger Moore Um, winks at the camera. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is great. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I love these films as, as problematic as they can be. Sometimes they fill me with, with such endless joy. And it's been a pleasure to, you know, scour them and look for details that I hadn't seen before. And it's always nice to find new ways to appreciate them. So I am very grateful for the opportunity to come on the Pink Smoke and talk about them. We appreciate you being on and I hope that you'll join us for Bond in the 80s. It would be my pleasure. Outstanding. Our conversation will continue. John Arminio will return in (laughs) Bond in the 80s. And, oh, God, I can't wait. Octopussy. (laughs) (laughs) And Christopher Walken, Grace Jones, we got that ahead of us. I'm excited already. 